You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode number 81, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today we're going to get back into Bushido and Christianity by Takemi Sasamori. But before we do that, I want to say thank you again to everyone who subscribes and supports the podcast. Thank you to everybody who shares the podcast and recommends it. In the past week, we've had 348 unique listeners check out the podcast for the first time. So thank you so much for what you do to encourage others and turn them on to the podcast. Uh, Also, as I noted, uh, I think on Wednesday, it has been remarkable to get feedback on the Nietzsche episodes in the midweek debriefs, something that I didn't think too many people would be all that terribly interested in, turns out, from the metrics that y'all are actually interested in reading Nietzsche and learning more about his philosophy and how it applies to the present tense. So thank you. Thank you for that as well. But that being said, then, let's dive into Sasamori's book on Bushido and Christianity. Today, we're going to address the matter of grafting Christianity onto Bushido and why that matters. So let's just get right to it. Sasamori writes, It is clear from reading Uchimura's literary works that his views on Bushido and Christianity are more defined than Tobe's. You remember Inazo Tobe famously wrote the book Bushido, which I linked to in the show notes last week. Uchimura described his own beliefs as Christianity grafted onto Bushido. It is noteworthy that both Uchimura and Nitobe used the keyword graft. To graft refers to the technology of artificially cultivating plants and agricultural crops by cutting off a branch or scarring the trunk of plant A that is growing and attaching to it the branch of plant B. Once attached, the branch of plant B survives by living off of plant A. This can increase plant B's harvest and resistance to disease. A famous example is how apples are grown by grafting, resulting in branches that do not grow too big and trees that are easier to harvest. It is critically important when grafting plant B onto plant A that both are compatible with each other. The fact that both Nitobe and Uchimura used the example of grafting when describing the relationship between Bushido and Christianity shows they were both led to the same conclusion, that these two ways had much in common and that melding them together would give rise to a new value system. Uchimura, in particular, highly valued the ethics of Bushido, writing, Most issues in our lives will be dealt with through Bushido. Be honest. Be honorable. Be magnanimous. Keep your promises. Do not go into debt. Do not pursue an enemy who is retreating. Do not take pleasure in the misfortune of others. These are the things that we do not need Christianity for. We will deal with these issues through the code of Bushido that has been passed down from our ancestors. However, he also considered Bushido to be incomplete, so he emphasized the importance of Christianity. Regarding our duty to God, our future judgment, and the path to both of these, Bushido teaches us nothing. We have no choice but to turn to the religion of Christianity when confronted with important questions such as these. Those who are Christian are not beneath the Japanese samurai. Those who cast aside Bushido or look down on it 
cannot be expected to be good followers of Christ. Those who God seeks from among the Japanese people, especially, are those who allow Christianity to dwell in the spirit of the samurai. And I think important to note then is that Uchimura and Itobe and Sasamori are riffing off of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Roman Christians, in which, in the later chapters, Paul writes that those who are Gentiles by birth, that is, not of Israel, they're not Israelites by birth, have been grafted onto the tree who is Jesus. And the imagery there is provocative because Jesus crucified, for example, the image of Christ crucified, nailed to the cross, has its roots in the book of Leviticus, in which it is said, cursed is anyone who is hung from a tree. So the image of Christ, of Jesus, being nailed to the cross, hung from a tree, as it were, is a powerful image for the Apostle Paul. And also then, allegorically or symbolically, however you want to phrase it, the image of then non-Israelites being brought into Israel by way of faith in Jesus as Savior, is how Paul explains in simple images how it's possible for those who aren't of Israel, who aren't under the Abrahamic covenant, who know nothing about the scriptures that have been handed down by the Israelites from one generation to the next. How is it that these people who have never even heard of Moses, for example, they've never read the book of Genesis, How is it that they can believe that Jesus is their Savior also, not just Israel's Savior? And Paul's answer is because they have been grafted into the tree who is Jesus. And then he goes on to explain that Israel is not a place on a map. It is not people who have a certain bloodline, but that true Israel is Jesus himself. And therefore, those who believe that Jesus is God and Savior have been grafted into this tree. They have been made a part of true Israel. And like I said, true Israel isn't a place or a people, it's a person, it's Jesus the Christ. So then, the way in which Paul explains to the Roman Christians is the same way that Uchimura and Itobe explain to the Japanese, and to the Japanese Christians in particular, this is how Bushido and Christianity relate to one another. They are like plant A that has had plant B grafted into it. So there is biblical precedent for this, and it is also a provocative image, especially for an agrarian people. And so regardless of who you are, whether you are a Roman Christian and therefore not an Israelite by birth, or you are a Japanese Christian, or an American Christian, or a Tanzanian Christian, wherever you find yourself in the world, Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is John chapter 1 in his gospel that he died for the sins of the whole world, the cosmos, the universe. And therefore, it is not a matter of bloodline, it is not a matter of biology, whether one is a part of Israel or not, but rather the only necessary thing for one to become a part of Israel, so to speak, is to be grafted into the tree who is Christ Jesus. And this simply comes through faith in the testimony of the Bible, of the New Testament in particular, the Gospels specifically, that testified to the fact that Jesus was crucified and then three days later was raised from the dead and appeared to over 500 witnesses. 
Therefore, it's not a matter of where are you in the world, Carmen San Diego. It's simply a matter of do you believe this to be true? If so, you are a part of Israel. You are grafted into the tree. So then, be honest, be honorable, magnanimous, and so forth. You don't need to be a Christian to be honorable or to be honest or to keep your promises and not go into debt and not pursue your enemy when they're retreating and not take pleasure in the misfortune of others. We call this in the West natural law. That is, it is an objective criteria, an objective measure of good and evil that is written into the hearts of every individual person. And therefore, one does not need to be a Christian, one does not need to be religious to embrace these basic principles. This is natural law. It's the law of nature. Be honest. You don't have to be religious or believe in God. You can be a stone-cold, atheist, vegan, save-the-whales person. doesn't matter. You know naturally. Be honest, be honorable, keep your promises, don't take pleasure in other people's suffering. You know that. You don't need to be a Christian to believe that. You don't need to believe Jesus is your Savior. You don't need to believe in God to know that. That's natural law. Likewise, then, Bushido as an ethical system functions just fine apart from Christianity because the only thing that makes Christianity Christian at the end of the day is not its ethics or its morality, but rather one thing, that Christians confess that Jesus died on a Friday and was raised from the dead on a Sunday. That's it. Everything else is defined by that one action. Outside of that action, one does not need to be a Christian to be ethical or moral. And I think that's a key and a very important point, especially for folks in the West who think that the Judeo-Christian ethic, for example, is necessary in order to establish a moral society. Has it been the foundation of Western society for hundreds of years? Yes, obviously. Is it necessary? Well, it depends on how you define necessary. An objective set of ethical and moral principles that order society and contribute to its good? Yeah, I would argue that's a good thing. And the Judeo-Christian ethic historically has been that, that measure, that canon. Does it have its faults? Yes, of course it does. It's handled by people who are sinful and selfish and self-seeking and self-serving. But is there a better system? I don't know. We haven't found one yet. Getting rid of it doesn't seem to work. I know that much. And so within then Japanese culture at this time, within Japanese society, they have this history, this Bushido, this ethical system. Is it there as strongly as it was a century earlier? No, it's not. Are they haunted by it? In a certain sense, yes, they are. But it's still there. And maybe it's implicit, maybe it's taken root in the identity and the personality of the people of Japan, but it's still there, even though it was never written down. Again, natural law, it's written on our hearts. But for Uchimura then, just like philosophers in the West to the present tense, I just watched a lecture by, or an interview with Jordan Peterson, makes essentially the same argument. There is an objective ethical system in place that does not require us to believe in it or accept it. It simply is there. And it is natural to every individual human being. The knowledge of good and evil, 
the knowledge that to be good, one must be honest and honorable, not go into debt, not take pleasure in other people suffering or being hurt. Everybody can agree to that in some way, shape, or form. But what's it lacking? Well, when it comes to God and our future and the path to both God and our future, Bushido, just like Judeo-Christian ethics, do nothing for us. They teach us nothing about this. And therefore, Uchimura's conclusion is we must turn to Christianity then when confronted with important questions like God, the universe, and the meaning of everything. Bushido, like any ethical system, can govern our lives in the present tense. It can even, in a certain sense, frame our direction going into the future that has yet to occur. However, what it cannot tell us, what ethics, no matter what system of ethics they may be, what they cannot tell us, like any moral law, any system of law, cannot tell us is, one, what is there a God? Two, what does that God think about me? How do I relate to that God? And ultimately, where am I going? <laughs> and therefore, for Ichimara and Natobi and Sasamori, this is where Christianity is grafted into Bushido or vice versa, is that at the end of the day, no ethical system, no moral system can explain to us in a satisfying way our relation to God, our relation to the universe, the meaning of our lives, the goal and purpose of our lives. It can only tell us how to live right now in such a way that we can get along with each other, we can live at peace with ourselves and our neighbors and be satisfied with life. But the roots of that life, where this life comes from, why we exist, ethics and morals can't answer that question for us. Never has been able to and never will be able to. And yet, when we conceive of a higher power, a prime mover, a God, because it's the only frame of reference that we have, it's our default frame of reference, morality and ethics, we tend to frame any belief in any God in terms of morals and ethics, in terms of laws. And as a consequence, then, we always end up frustrated because we find a God that is inscrutable and often arbitrary and capricious in the way in which that deity, that divinity, interfaces with humanity. Why do hurricanes happen? Why do people die from cancer? Why do babies starve to death in their crib because they don't have enough to eat? These are questions that the law cannot answer for us. Ethics and morals cannot answer these questions for us. Because you can be a good person and a tornado can still tear through your town and level your house and everybody else's house to the ground. You can be a charitable, kind, loving individual and still bring your baby home from the hospital and horrifyingly discover it to be dead in its bed from SIDS. You can be the best worker. You can be the team lead. You can be a valuable member of the, co of the company and still be fired for no reason other than we had to downsize because we had a bad quarter last year and lost money. The law can't answer ultimately the question of your status in relationship to God and the universe or what the meaning of your life is. It can only help you live a good life in the present tense today.
And so therefore, he says, Christianity is not beneath the Japanese samurai. Christians are not beneath the Japanese samurai. In fact, Christians have something to give by way of gift to the Japanese samurai, which is, this is who God is. This is how God wants to be known and how God wants to relate to you as your father, as your heavenly father. This is Jesus. This is how God chooses to relate to you in the flesh. He comes in the flesh. He dies for your sin. He's raised for your justification. And yet he says, those who allow Christianity to dwell in the spirit of the samurai, essentially then you've got the full package. You've got a very strong ethical and moral system, and you live in confidence and a certain amount of satisfaction that you know you're standing in relation to God because of Jesus. So then Sasamori continues, the ethics that are part of the Christian faith were already being practiced within Bushido and would have been familiar to any Japanese person because they share a similar ethical system. It, would be, it was because religious salvation was not an element of Bushido that Christianity was still necessary. Religious salvation is about how you should view yourself as you live your life and what is to become of you after you die. I will discuss why it is important to address these two questions in more detail later in this book. Uchimura asserted that it was really the Christian who embraced Bushido, who was the image that God sought in the Japanese people he himself created. Why was it only Bushido that was incomplete? Uchimura explained that no matter how lofty the ethics of Bushido, in the final analysis, it was a philosophy created by man. There you go. So it could not be perfect. Something that was perfect could come only from God. It is only logical that when Christianity becomes fused with Bushido, the power of God added to Bushido will lead to a perfectly complete belief system. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. God, who is the creator of all things, shows his existence in all things he creates. Westerners believe that Christianity is something bestowed upon man by God. Uchimura pointed out that the Japanese people as well are God's creation. So it is only natural that the existence of God be evident in the Japanese. Bushido is the evidence of his existence. Quote, those who are created by God are children of God. We Japanese prove his existence in us, which is only a fraction of his light. It is my belief that Bushido is the greatest of blessings that God has bestowed upon the Japanese people. There you go. Law and gospel, as we call it in the Lutheran tradition. What does the law establish for you? System of ethics by which you may live your life and live in relation to your neighbor by serving your neighbor, acting honorably toward your neighbor, being compassionate towards your neighbor, sacrificing for the sake of your neighbor, being charitable. That's great. That's good. That's the way God created the world to work. That's why he put us here. However, that's half the story. There's still the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which sets you free from worry and guilt and anxiety about your relationship to God. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians in Greece, Jesus is God's yes to all of the world's no. Because the law is constantly diagnosing us. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you're going to die. And so we spend our entire lives trying to do the right things and to live and to avoid doing the wrong things and dying. But in the end, we all die. So how far does obeying the law get us? How far does our compliance and obedience take us? Only as far as our legs will carry us. 
So in the end, it is a law of diminishing returns. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you'll die. Well, eventually there's just more and more things I can't do anymore. And eventually we all die. And then what? What was it all for? For Uchimara, for Natobe, for Sasamori, for myself. When I was 24 and I asked these questions, the answer is not good enough. Not enough. Not satisfying. Not a satisfactory answer. What else is there? What more is there? And it was through the study of astrophysics and cell biology for myself that brought me to a belief in a higher power, in a God. And then it was four years before I came to believe that the Bible and the testimony about Jesus was true. And to this day, I look at this in relation to what Nietzsche said about maturation. That is, that the point of maturation is to rediscover that childlike sense of, of wonder and curiosity about the world. And that is what Christianity is to me in a certain sense. That is what my faith is to me in a certain sense. It is that childlike curiosity to wonder at the elegance of the universe, from the mitochondria to the tachyon particle. And I find these things and everything in between endlessly fascinating. And rather than diminish my curiosity about the world, somehow leading me to the conclusion that I know enough or I know everything that I need to know, instead I am constantly being challenged to acknowledge that I don't really know anything in relation to all there is to be known. And that even that which I observe to be true and real, my preconceptions, my presuppositions, my biases, they are a set of glasses that I see the world through. And I've got to constantly check to make sure that I'm not allowing my presuppositions and my biases to cloud reality for me. And so ultimately, and this is just my personal belief, after 20 plus years of chewing on these questions, those who deny the existence of God lack a childlike sense of wonder and curiosity about the universe. And I say that because talking with a child about life, the universe, and the meaning of everything, they are endlessly asking questions, endlessly curious, always wanting to know the why, the what, the how. And if you say to a child, God made this, or a God made this, there's a higher power that created all of this, that's satisfying to a child. To an adult who has been hardened by life, heartbroken by life, who has lost that childlike sense of curiosity and wonder, or is constantly second-guessing themselves, I think it's more difficult to have that conversation. Because in many cases, in my experience, and I speak from the experience of being an atheist until I was 24, 25, 26, it's easy to believe that you've got things basically under control, that you pretty much got life figured out, or at least figured out enough to make your way through life. You don't need to believe in any higher power, any God to get you through the day, which again is true in relation to the law. If you have a strong ethical system, a strong moral system to live by, you don't need God. I don't need God. I am a very self-disciplined person. I have a very strong moral code. I have a very 
rigid ethical system that I'm constantly violating because I'm human, but it's there and I adhere to it. And I am excited every day to learn more about Stoic philosophy, to read Nietzsche because of that. I want to be a more moral person. I want to be more ethical. But for me anyways, just me, that's at the end of the day still unsatisfying. I need more. I need grace. I need forgiveness because I'm constantly violating my own system. I'm constantly tripping up and failing to uphold my own moral code. Do I do it maliciously and willfully? Sometimes, yeah, I do. (laughs) If I allow myself to become angry or frustrated with others, if I allow resentment to creep back into my heart, if I don't check my presuppositions and biases, yes, 100%, I can bend and warp my own moral code to suit my prejudices and my judgments, especially if there's no one to check me, which is why I need grace and forgiveness. I need to know that there's more to life and the universe and everything than just do your best while you're here. And then when you check out, hopefully people remember you or they think kindly of you, but that's just me. And again, those are my presuppositions, my prejudices and biases. I'm well aware of that. And I'm not saying that faith isn't that. It is. But for me, faith points me to a higher reality, something greater than myself that is beyond my comprehension to grasp. And therefore, that's actually what faith is. It's trust. So those who are created by God are children of God. That's why Christians practice baptism. Because Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Saved from what? Well, in Christian theology, according to our Bible, it's sin, that's selfishness, death, and the power of the devil or the judgment of God. And again, I understand for many people, especially nowadays, this seems like old-timey superstitious nonsense. Again, childish stuff. But again, think about that. You consider these things to be childish, and yet Nietzsche says that the point of maturation is to regain, rediscover that childlike sense of wonder and curiosity about the world. And even Nietzsche himself acknowledged that he believed in another world, a true world. Heaven, if you want to call it that, paradise, the next life, whatever you might... Even Nietzsche, no matter how hard he forced the issue of his atheism still believed at the end of the day that there was another world. There was a true world beyond this one, which is from Plato, by the way. So you don't even have to be a Christian or religious to believe that there's a heaven or a paradise. But then ask yourself the question, if Plato or Nietzsche or people in the East all come to the exact same conclusion, that there has to be a God, that there has to be a true world, a paradise, a heaven, and also thereby a hell or an, you know, an infernal place, if people completely unconnected from each other all come to the same conclusions on their own, what is that? Where does that come from? Just a question. Something to think about today, maybe. But Ichimara did not stop there. His further, he further explained that Christianity without Bushido was morally deficient. This was clear by observing how nations that identified themselves as Christian started wars and other conflicts and by how they treated the weak. 
right? If you have the law and no gospel, you don't ever really know what your status is in relation to God because the law says, do more. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you'll die. But for Christians who say, well, I've got the gospel. I've got the good news about Jesus Christ. I don't need laws. I'm going to heaven. I don't need to care about this world. This isn't my home. Heaven's my home. Well, actually, that's why Christians end up starting wars in the name of God. And that's why you treat the weak and those who are materially poor like they're less than dirt. Because you have no moral compass. You have no ethical system by which to live by, which is not true. And by attempting to live according to the gospel or only by the gospel without the law, you're betraying your own heart. Because as I noted, natural law is written on everyone's heart regardless of who they are, where they live, where they come from, what generation they live in, what they believe. So even a Christian, or maybe especially a Christian, acts contrary to their own nature, to what is written on their heart when they try to claim that they are above any law and they don't have to care for their neighbor or this world because they're going to heaven. That's why Uchimara notes that even in Japan, the behavior of those who considered themselves Christian did not live up to the standards of the samurai. Bushido was needed even by Christians. The proof was that it was the samurai who made the finest Christians. I want to repeat that. For those of you who are Christians and live according to a warrior mindset or the warrior ethos, the proof was that it was samurai who made the finest Christians. You can't live only by the law, but you can also not only live by the gospel. One grounds you so much in this world that you never consider the world to come. But then if you're only living and you only consider the world to come, you don't don't really consider how you are living in the present tense because you're just waiting for Jesus to come back. You're just waiting to go to heaven. You don't care about other people. You're a Christian. You're going to heaven. It's both. It's that tension. It's the dichotomy. I have to live according to law so that I can live a good life in relation to my neighbor, get along with my neighbor, be a good neighbor to everyone that I encounter. I can live with honor, integrity, courage, wisdom, justice, charity. But none of those things get me right with God. None of those things are going to get me into heaven. Only faith in Jesus does that. But if I say, well, I have faith in Jesus and therefore I don't need to worry about you or anybody else. Well, why did God put you here in the first place? to love and serve your neighbor, and to love him with your whole heart, spirit, and mind. Or, yeah. It's not either or, it's both and. That's why samurai has made the finest Christians. And this is a bit of a jag, so just bear with me for a second. Ever since the early church, even in the New Testament, there has been a conflict about whether or not a soldier can be a Christian. Because a soldier's responsibility, a duty, may be to kill, maybe to go to war, maybe to fight an unjust war. So how can a Christian be a soldier, a warrior? And this is the point that Uchimura is making, is that the warrior lives by a code, a moral code, that doesn't allow him to act unjustly, uncharitably. We talked about this last Sunday in the last podcast. It doesn't allow him to bully the weak. It doesn't allow him to treat others like lessers. But rather, there is a strict moral code. He lives within an ethical system that will now allow him to make himself weak 
by dehumanizing and tyrannizing others. A warrior can never be toxic, can never be a terrorist, can never be unjustly violent toward others. When he does, he is no longer a warrior because he no longer embraces the code of the warrior. But ultimately, why is he a warrior? Why has this become his vocation? Because he trusts that God has given him this vocation for the defense and protection of his neighbors. Remember, in Greek, the word hero means protector, defender. It is the term applied to fathers. It is also the term applied to soldiers. Protect and defend. Why did God put you on this earth to protect and defend those who cannot protect and defend themselves? And yet, you may have to kill in the line of duty, whether you're law enforcement, military, whatever it might be, within the vocation that you're called to do this in. And that's no small thing. Anyone who has done violence to another person in order to stop them from hurting another person, anyone who has had to pull the trigger and take a human life knows you don't walk back from that. You don't get past that. You move through it, but it's always there. It's like a tattoo. You can even try and get it lasered off or take sandpaper to it so that you never have to see it again in the mirror. But you're always going to have the scars of it. Because violence at that level, violence to that degree, never completely heals. And the more you do it, and the more you witness it, the harder it is to move through it. And some never do. My dad never got through it to this day. Friends of mine who are veterans who have served in combat have never moved through it, never gotten through it, never gotten around it or past it, and they never will. No amount of medication, no amount of therapy, no amount of counseling and talking about it or living or being forgiven is going to set them free from that yoke, lift that off their shoulders. And without forgiveness, without their faith, at least in my own experience in relation to people that I know personally, they would eat a bullet without a second thought. Because the horror and the terror and the doubt and the guilt and the shame and the fear and the anger and resentment, it's like taking a piece of paper and shredding it in anger. It is violence upon violence. And there is no peace there. Not at the bottom. And those are my friends, men and women, who walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And they never walked out. So when you meet them, they seem happy and friendly. Some of them are devout Christians. They're good people, good moral people. But when they're alone with you and they trust you and they let their guard down, the truth comes out. And it's not like they want 
I should rephrase that. They don't want you to tell them you understand or you sympathize. You don't, you're not there to let them off the hook, so to speak, and say, you know what? What you did was honorable. What you did took courage. You did it in line of duty. You did your job. You had to do what you had to do. They already know all that. What they want to hear is absolution. And not, you need to forgive yourself. Not, if it helps, I forgive you. I'm just a man. My forgiveness is conditional, always. They need unconditional forgiveness, unconditional absolution. And not just unconditional forgiveness, but it has to be the kind of forgiveness that actually does what it says. It has to heal their heart at the deepest, most profound level, right to the very soul of that man or woman. And in my experience, and this is, again, just my experience, I'm only speaking for myself, to put your hands on their head or to grab their hand and grip them tightly or even to take their face in your hands and force them to look at you. When you say, I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and was raised for your forgiveness, there is power in those words, the power to heal, the power to remove the burden, the yoke that's on their shoulders. It is, to use the analogy, like picking up a branch that has been broken off of a tree by a storm and grafting it back onto a stronger, healthier tree. My forgiveness is conditional, limited. I'm human. I'm a man. It would be like taking that, that branch and grafting it back on the tree that it, that it was broken off of. Does it regrow? Maybe, but most likely not. Jesus, that tree, is stronger and more powerful, more potent than any other tree. And the graft always takes. And there's always fruit then that grows as a consequence from that branch. That's what my friends, people that I encounter who are veterans in law enforcement, that's what they need. That's what they want. That's what they pray for. That's what they're coming to ask for, even if they don't know what the question is. I don't need to be grafted back onto the old tree. I need to be grafted onto a tree that is going to cause me to grow and cause fruit to grow from me again because I'm dead. I'm dead inside. I'm a dead man walking. I'm a dead woman walking. So I need more than just pablum. I need more than just salve. I need more than just medication. None of that's going to raise me from the dead. None of that is going to pump life back into my heart. None of that's going to stop me from eating a bullet tonight. I need a word that actually does what it says. And that's why warriors need Christianity, because they need forgiveness. And not just any kind of forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness that does exactly what it says. It heals. It soothes. It is the medicine of immortality, as we sometimes call it. Bushido was needed even by Christians. The proof was that it was the samurai who made the finest Christians. 
below is an easy-to-understand explanation of Uchimura's theory of grafting. Quote, Christianity, grafted upon Bushido, will be the world's finest product. It will save not only Japan, but the whole world. Now that Christianity is dying in Europe and America due to its materialism, cannot revive it. God is calling upon Japan to contribute its best to his service. There was a meaning in the history of Japan. For 20 centuries, God has been perfecting Bushido with this very moment in view. Christianity grafted onto Bushido will yet save the world. Both Uchimura and Natobe viewed Christianity and Bushido through similar ethical lenses. But when Uchimura took into consideration the samurai attitude toward courage and the spirit of self-sacrifice, he concluded that Christianity was the better choice. Quote, Bushido places great value on courage and self-sacrifice. But when you consider Christ on the cross, the way of life pointed to by Christianity is far superior. Therefore, it was due to this spirit that many warriors came to embrace Christianity at the end of the Meiji era. Once they discarded their prejudice against it and saw it for what it was, it was only natural that they became devoted servants of Jesus. Maybe, to follow Uchimara's logic, maybe the reason that Christianity is dying or all but dead in the United States, for example, is because there's no more warriors, or there are so few warriors. And to add to that, the warrior ethos is as dead as Christianity is in the West, in my opinion. And therefore, if the warrior ethos is all but dead, and Christianity itself is all but dead, well then, how is the world to be saved when there is no moral code to live by, no warrior's code to live by? which inculcates all of the best traits of humanity, all of those gifts and abilities that God imbued us with, that free us to enjoy creation, to enjoy each other, and to do so for everybody else's good. Because, of course, everybody else's well-being contributes to my well-being and vice versa. If I'm healthy then I can contribute to your overall health by serving you. But if I'm sick, I can't help you. I can't show up for you. And therefore, you suffer because I suffer. If you're unhealthy and you can't show up to help me, I suffer because you suffer. Likewise, where there is no gospel, where there is no unconditional forgiveness of sin, where there is no power to heal the human heart and soul, scarred by sin, deadened by sin, there is no hope. There's no hope for the present tense. There's no hope for the future. So it is unfortunate, in my opinion, it's unfortunate to me, that I, like the prophet Elijah, seem to be all but alone nowadays, as if there is no one else who trusts in the power of the gospel to save. And likewise, that there is practically no one who wants to embrace Bushido, who wants to embrace the way of the warrior. 
In fact, not only do they not want to embrace it, but they vilify it and demonize it. So that I find, at least for myself, maybe you've experienced this also, I'm demonized for my faith, and I'm demonized for my ethics, my morality. But Jesus did warn us about this in the Gospels. So <laughs> if they've hated me, they're going to hate you. They're going to think they're, they're offering worship to God by killing you. Affliction and suffering go hand in hand with the Christian faith. We're told we're going to be afflicted and persecuted. We're told that's kind of, the, that's kind of what's going to happen to us if we follow Jesus. Likewise, with the warrior ethos, with the way of the warrior, Bushido, when you are a warrior or you embrace a warrior's mindset in a society of victims, in a society of slaves, people who are weak and timid, well, what do you expect? Which is why I think if you look at a warrior culture, contrary to the materialistic way that Christianity is understood most often in the West, when you look at a warrior culture, you will also find deep, deep faith and belief in the same culture. As I've said before and as I've learned, many fighters that I know tell me the same thing. It's easy to be flippant and nonchalant about belief until you're locked in a cage with someone who wants to punch your face through the back of your head. And then all of a sudden you find yourself questioning why am I in this cage right now? What am I doing with my life? Why am I doing this? What is the meaning of my life? It is interesting that those who are most exposed to violence, most exposed to the reality of violence and conflict, are also people that I know who are the most devout believers in Jesus. And in the West, that is not a very popular opinion anymore even within my own peer group, I know very few clergy who would agree with what I just said. Likewise, I don't know many Christians who would agree with what I've said. But on the flip side, maybe you've had this experience too where you are a part of a warrior class. You are military or law enforcement. You've embraced a warrior mindset. You're a fighter and a person of faith. And yet you're mocked and vilified for your faith as a fighter. But I think what both have given to me is the confidence to not depend on other people's opinion, to not value other people's opinion, because as Nietzsche pointed out, as we read this past Wednesday, that's vanity. Needing others to assign value to your faith, needing others to assign value to your moral um, code or your ethical system, that's vanity. That's a sign of inferiority, a sign of weakness. And it has no place, of course, in the Christian faith, or in Bushido, which maybe is why we're vilified and demonized. Because those people need someone to assign value to their lives because they have nothing of value to order and direct their lives. They have nothing of value to believe in. They have not found any greater reason to be alive other than eat, consume, digest, let it go, do it again, pursue pleasure, avoid suffering and pain. Follow the herd, stay with the herd, embrace the slave morality. How could they not vilify and demonize 
Christians and warriors. We are a mirror that convicts them of their inferiority, of their weaknesses and timidity. So to what degree did Uchimura and Natobe, who both advocated the spread of Bushido throughout the world, actually practice martial arts? It's a good question. Perhaps they liked the martial arts but did not practice any. Of course, coming from a samurai lineage, they would have been familiar with Bushido. However, this does not mean they diligently practice the martial arts every day. I think that one of the reasons Christianity was not more widely accepted in Japan is because those who made the martial arts a lifelong pursuit did not incorporate Christian philosophy into their daily practice. Well, there you go. Perhaps if Uchimura and Natobe had taught the martial arts, they may have been able to broaden the appeal of Christianity within their own country. Wishing that Natobe and Uchimura had been talented martial artists may be unfair. As educators and scholars, they left behind many great accomplishments, and this is because they came into contact with Christianity, were baptized, and received a proper education while they were still in high school. I certainly have not accomplished the remarkable deeds of these two, but share a similar history in that I was born into a samurai family that once served the Tsugaru domain, and like them, came in contact with Christianity at a young age. This is the reason I am a minister who doubles as the soke of Ito Ryu. That's the art of one blade. In the next section, I will talk about the personal approach both my father and I have taken as soke when it comes to teaching Ito Ryu. I will also introduce key points and lessons of this school. And that is the end of that chapter on the grafting of Bushido and Christianity. I don't want to go on too long. I took up a lot of your time with the midweek debrief. And um, your time is valuable to me. Your attention is valuable to me. And I don't want to abuse it. So I will leave off early today, even though I normally, I think, end at about 49, 50 minutes. So I guess we know how long my... uh, my brain uh, explosions last about 49 minutes. (laughs) But as always, again, I thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. I thank you for supporting and encouraging me as I go in uh, whatever direction the Lord leads me with this podcast, whether it be going down the rabbit hole with Friedrich Nietzsche or reading Takemi Sosomori and Bushida in Christianity. We'll definitely be coming back to Jordan Peterson very soon and maybe some other old favorites like Nitobe on Bushido. But as always, thank you. Thank you so much for what you do to support the show financially. Shout out to Michaela and Melody. And uh, yeah, I will then talk to you again hmm, Wednesday, God willing. All right, weirdos. Love you. Peace.